This episode of Morning Meeting is brought to you by Klonopin, Casa Dragones Tequila, and Turkey Chili from Citarella. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. What a week it's been, Michael. Has it been a week or four years? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a bang-up week that's left me pretty banged up. How about you? Emotional whiplash. Can't seem to stay with the mood for more than 30 minutes. Uh, I'm very happy it's the weekend. Yeah. If you guys notice that we're not mentioning any breaking news, it's simply because we didn't stay up all night to re-record this podcast for the 18th time this week. A breaking news item. Consider this a safe space where it's not happening, at least. That's that's the advantage of us recording this a couple days early. There you go, Michael. There you go. Well, luckily, no one has to listen to us yammer on about this because we have the ultimate source of all things intelligent. Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor, is going to join us today to talk about what to make of all of this and what's next for America and also the Graydon Carter Amendment to the Constitution, which is a pretty, pretty fascinating idea. Yeah, it's a great idea, and I think it's a very smart idea, which I think could solve a lot of this drama or preempt much of this drama in the future. So we've got that coming up. we got that in the issue. What else do we have, Ashley? All right, Michael, we're going to talk about Hunter Biden, the drama, the intrigue, the sexiness. We are. We're also going to talk about Bridgerton, the television show on Netflix that no one really understands. We're also going to talk about the UK lockdown, and we have... A pretty great source on today, Rachel Johnson, an esteemed journalist, very funny writer, and also the sister of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, will be joining us to talk about her frustrations with the way things are going down in the UK. That's a it's a dishy one, Michael. Dishy. Wow, I'm excited. Lots of great stuff. Two great interviews. It's been a week that there's a lot to talk about. So, Michael, we could try to make sense of what happened in the United States this week, specifically at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., but we have much better voices than our own to talk about this. And our co-editor, Alessandra Stanley, is here to make sense of it all. So welcome to Morning Meeting, Alessandra. Hey. All right. So first of all, let's talk. How long should an outgoing president remain in office? Well, obviously not not this long because, and that's what actually we were writing about this week, and it was Graydon's idea. Other every other civilized country, once you lose an election, you're out. You know, you maybe have a week to pack, two weeks maybe if you have a lot of luggage, and then you're done. But you know, if we've had these idle, idle hands, tiny, idle tiny hands in the White House now for two months, and this is what it leads to. So the idea would be to change that. So that, God forbid, in the future, anyone like Trump wins the presidency, at least you'd get them out when they lose it. And actually, Graydon, as you know, is from Canada. So he was saying, you know, in Canada, you've got two weeks. That's it. I mean, in France, you've got less than a month. Um, in England, it's practically the next day. When you're no longer the leader of the country, it's time to leave. Yeah. And it's one of those common things. I mean, it, as you guys say, very... <laughs> your great lines as usual, which is, you know, like he's the boyfriend who won't get over, give over the keys. He's the, he's the CEO who hangs out in front of the office after he's been sacked, you know, and yet there's no company in the world, no organization where you would have this guy just like sit around in his office while you, there's a new CEO been named. It's just like you get rid of these people right away. So why not have a clear eyed amendment to the constitution that sort of shortens that time, right? Well, if ever there was a time where it became obvious how necessary this is, this would be it. So, yeah. The Graydon Carter Amendment. 
sponsored by Alessandra Stanley. I mean, it's certainly better than all these people saying he should resign two weeks or whatever, should be kicked out two, two weeks before he is going to be anyway. Let's just go back to the putsch. As we, as, what do you, we, I mean, because technically, as I've been told, it's not really a, a, a coup. But anyway, we'll, we'll let the stylist argue for that. But I mean, again, I love your line here where you say, you know, Wednesday gave the fringe the opportunity to turn the sanctum of American democracy into an own, its own kind of circus maximus, right? Which is just this show we never thought we'd see. Right. By the way, that is Graydon's great line. I'll give it to you. Okay, let's, I'll take it. If you come a morning meeting, you get the credit. That's just how it works. That's right. <laughs> why, why do you think I'm here? So, Alison, what do you make of all of these last-minute defectors? You know, these, these <laughs> staffers having a crisis of conscience. Well, like, I love it because it's... it's Deeply disturbed, disturbed, I guess is what they're saying. They're all saying they're deeply disturbed by what happened. And it's become the, the sort of shock, shock, shock to find gambling of this administration. And, you know, I mean, bless their little hearts. It's kind of like when Parisians would join the resistance on, on you know, in August 23rd, 1944, two days before, you know, the Germans surrendered. They're leaving just, just, just now they're, they're finding themselves deeply disturbed. Although I have to say, I mean, in defense of the Pete Melania's staff, I mean, that was a part-time job anyway, so they might as well leave now. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about her chief of staff and her... Oh, You're talking about her social planner. Her social secretary. Her social secretary has had enough. She's had it. That's it. Yeah. I can't believe I don't have any more engagements to plan. There's no more invitations to answer. <laughs> no more napkins to fold. Uh, yeah, so that's that's a, that's the one comic spectacle out of all this, but it is all very sad and sorry. Are any Republicans coming out on top? Well, this was a terrible, terrible thing, but it was almost worth it because we got to see Romney with his hair must. Um, he's, done, he's doing fine. And, you know, the other person who's probably doing fine is, is the most acrobatic and nimble politician in the world, Lindsey Graham, who suddenly loves Biden and just thinks Trump is a big mistake. So... You know, so we'll see. But it's not a pretty sight for Republicans at the moment. Some optimists are saying that this could be the beginning of the end of Trumpism. Is that an overly optimistic view? Yes. I mean, how do we know? Who knows that? Um, Those people are still angry. They're not going to go. I mean, they're going to go home, but they're not going away. So, I, I, you know, maybe it won't be called Trumpism. Maybe it'll be something else. Josh Hawleyism. Yeah, I was about to say I was Hawleyism. But... I, I don't know how you how how you make that rancor go away. That's that's just so much part of the scenery now. Can I interject on my one as I as I mentioned to us in the editorial meeting today on Zoom, among the many kind of you know head scratching moments, which I'm sure people are going to be trying to solve over the next week weeks and months, is here we are 20 years after 9/11, when it seems like you know even you know a, a 7-Eleven has better security right now than. The congressional building. Uh, I mean, that you could basically smash a window of a door in Congress and basically get in. What, what kind of security system do they have there? It's, it's unbelievable. Well, it's always too late when they. But we're going to have millions of congressional hearings. They will beef up security, and it's a sad because when you read Todd's piece, Todd Purdom's wonderful piece about being a congressional page and and the freedom, the relative freedom, with journalists. And, used to have around the hill is going to be gone forever. You're not going to be able to roam the halls and go up to people and, and, and talk to senators and, and their staff. 
and you won't be able to get out for lunch. Belatedly, they'll uh, turn it into a fortress. So much for the optimism there, Michael. <laughs> okay, the good news is he's leaving. Just not today. All right, Alessandra, as someone who is a touch contrarian, exactly how we like you, are you a touch disappointed that the news cycle is about to get a lot more predictable as a journalist? Oh, I don't think it is because, uh, and this is not very cheerful, but, you know, I think the minute Biden gets in, uh, Republicans are going to come after him with, for his son, Hunter Biden. And I think we're going to have theatrics. It won't be as dramatic and exciting and scary as it was under Trump, but I don't think... I don't think um, happy days are here again yet. Oh, God. So, Alessandra, all of the paranoia that we're encountering about this establishment elite that is self-perpetuating, is it paranoia? Well, it's interesting you say so, because it's not entirely paranoia. If you watched any of the cable shows, you saw a parade of former Bush officials, the very same people who misled the country into a ill-prepared war in Iraq, talking about how the protesters were uh, inflamed with falsehoods and um, Chertoff. I mean, Bush actually said that. He said that that um, it was terrible that these people had been misled. And he was the one who misled the country about WMD. And then you had Chertoff, the guy who didn't see Katrina coming, talking about how the Capitol Police was at fault because any five-year-old could have seen there was going to be trouble. So- uh, you know, as crazy and wrong as the rioters are, people who think that there's an establishment in Washington that is self-perpetuating uh, aren't wrong. What's the cure for that if there is any? Well, <laughs> stop having these people on CNN, you know? I mean, Colin Powell was all over television talking about how well he handled 1992, a riot in L.A., not mentioning how he knew that there was no WMD or at least knew that the evidence was trumped up and didn't say anything, not even to Bush. You know, it's just it's just very galling. So we need we this is a message to television producers everywhere, guys. Think twice. Look, read the history books before you book these people. Yeah. The amnesia that goes on is can be infuriating. I was watching some footage of, of these people pillaging the Capitol yesterday, and you could hear, you know, you couldn't see this woman in the mob, but you could hear her. She must have been close to the camera. And in this footage I saw, she was saying, this house needs a good saging. <laughs> well, that probably is true. Well, if any luck, we've seen the worst. And if people would just listen to uh, us, this won't happen again because the president will be out when he loses the election. We should call this the airmail amendment. <laughs> we should call it the Graydon Carter amendment because he's from Canada, so he thought he spotted that right away. Very smart. All right, Alessandro. Well, if there's anything else you'd like to add, by all nothing, means. nothing, nothing. Thank you so much, and um, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. For some reason, I've been on a lot of Zooms with the UK this week, and everyone I've talked to has been so down in the doldrums about this lockdown. It's very strict. Apparently, you can only leave your house for an hour a day. The rules are quite draconian, and uh, it actually is making our New York lockdown from early in, earlier in this year look positively free. Yeah. So who better to talk to than with, with Rachel, who I think they've just started lockdown number three, and, and she's going to join us from London, right? Welcome, Rachel. Welcome. All right. Well, Michael, so lucky today. We've got Rachel Johnson here. Although, I don't know how lucky are we really. I mean, she's locked down at her home in London. 
She's available over Zoom. Thank goodness we have her. Um, and she's reported live on what's happening in the UK right now, which is, according to Rachel, dire and full of shame. So Rachel, welcome to Morning Meeting. Yes, we're in a world of shame. Our new lockdown started at midnight last night. So this is the first day of lockdown three. It's a world without end. It's a world of so much pain here. Everything's shut. You're supposed not to leave your house. What I think is really doing people's heads in is the sort of petty fogging rule book that has been imposed. It's a sort of granular level of detail. Like you can walk across a golf course, but you can't play golf. You can go to the park, but you can't sit on a park bench. You can have somebody inside your house, but if you have two people inside your house and you play Jenga, the police can break in. I think that if, if the government wants to take the country with them on this, they've got to explain the whole rule book and they've got to just dump and bin off the ones that are driving people insane because it's bad enough having to stay inside and only go out once a day. But you, if there's a legion, a myriad of, of little rules that don't seem to make sense, you're not going to take the country with you on this one. I'm amazed, like... Who had the time to write all these rules? I know. I mean, when you think that Michael Gove actually lay awake at night thinking, and tomorrow in the House of Commons, I'm going to (laughs) announce that you cannot sit on a park bench. I think people understand the larger purpose of it, which is we've got millions of doses of the vaccine on order. And more than a million people have, or a million and a quarter, as my brother announced in the comments, have just have had it in the arm already. So the vaccine rollout is underway. We've been told this is like one last heave and we're all in it together. And even the lockdown skeptics accept that because one in 30 people in London has it, one in, ne- one in 50 people nationally has the virus. I think we've all accepted, let's get our heads down, power on and get to the finishing line when we've all got the vaccine in the arm or enough people have or the vulnerable people have that we can start to gently unlock. The problem we have is that people are so enraged by the sort of spiteful, vindictive pettiness of the little laws that they may not observe the big ones, like stay home or don't go into another house or don't have a party. It's a question of framing this whole thing so that everybody's on board. And Rachel, one of the things that you write about so brilliantly in your piece is how this shaming has colored our social interactions with one another. This notion of COVID shaming has taken hold in the UK. You can basically tell when someone's in the Caribbean because their Instagram goes dark, you know, in terms of celebrity. (laughs) Uh, They don't post anything on Twitter or on Instagram for two weeks. And you think, right, they're in Antigua. They're in the Maldives. (laughs) There are very few air corridors left now since uh, just before Christmas, when in order to cancel Christmas, the government started talking up the COVID variants, these escaped mutant variants of the virus. So... As a result of that, you know, the government not only cancelled Christmas for the whole country, 40 other countries around the world, probably double that now, closed their borders to the UK just in order for the uh, government here to cancel Christmas, which was obviously a bad idea to have unbridled mingling for five days. So that's been the the journey so far since December. We were going to have a five-day bubble where everybody could hang out with five different households, cross the country, do 
do what they liked for five days. But then, of course, they realized that was absolute recipe for disaster because it would mean that the virus would be seeded in all the parts of the country that hadn't got the virus. And all the people who hadn't got the virus, the old, would then be infected by the young and the university students and everybody coming and hugging them for Christmas. So they had to cancel it, but they needed a really good reason to cancel it. And what they came up with was there's a new variant, a mutant variant. It's 60 to 80% more infectious than the old variant. Of course, you know, not realizing that not this, the audience for this, a message of doom, was not just this country. The audience was the world. Yeah, we, we, we should have been global Britain, but instead we were Plague Island because all these other countries were watching the press conference from Downing Street and they thought, wow, that sounds, that sounds really bad. You know, we less. There are a few countries uh, that you can still visit and our celebrity class has uh, made sure that they've spent the holiday season there and uh, coming back probably soon. Yeah, what's so funny about it is, is that people self-incriminate. That's what amazes me. The urge to show off seems to be greater than the instinct for self-preservation. The American perception of Brits is like, right, right, quiet, quiet. No, no one, no one causes a stir, right? And here, as you say in your piece, it's like these rules and these and this lockdown has has sort of fostered the inner Stasi, the, the, the secret police in, in, in all Brits, all of a sudden, everyone's sort of watching their neighbours now, right? Yeah, there's been a lot of curtain twitching and monitoring <laughs> of people's com- comings and goings. And we have a thing here where you look out for each other. It's called Neighbourhood Watch, but people have now called it Neighbourhood Snitch, mm-hmm. where you say if someone's like gone out in their jogging gear twice or they've got in their car and they didn't come back for two hours. And there was a lot of that in the spring lockdown. Now the game in town is do gotchas, tabloid gotchas for celebrities breaking the rules, especially media celebrities who have berated politicians for breaking the laws they themselves have made. For example, Kay Burley, the Sky News presenter, was caught having a dinner party in a restaurant for 10 or 12 people and then going across town and going into another restaurant. She's been um, benched by her the network for six months. One of the reporters with her, the political editor, Beth, has been benched for three months. We have two problems. There is the Stasi, inner Stasi has come out in in many, many people, which I absolutely loathe. I will never dob in anybody else for breaking rule. But the other thing that's come out is the exposure of hypocrisy, because you've got a lot of people in the media who are pointing the finger at politicians or saying that you know you should have locked down harder and faster and you know why didn't you sack Dominic Cummings who are then caught breaking the own the rules that they have been yammering on constantly from their pulpits their bully pulpits against other people for doing so there's both the inner Stasi and the outer hypocrite and it's just a horrible atmosphere and very, very unpleasant. Nobody says, look, cut that person some slack. They may be exempt from wearing a mask or maybe that person's going to a hospital appointment or just live and let live. We've all got to get through this. Instead, it's becoming judgment day every day. It's like a competition for who's the most miserable. (laughs) I mean, yes, there's a lot of that, yeah. The only thing that gives me solace listening to you is I thought Americans were grade A a a-holes. And I feel like 
like the mask wars here and all that. And it seems like there's a bit of that happening there, right? Well, I don't want to self-incriminate myself. (laughs) I wasn't asking you to. I find this very hard. You know, I was expelled from school. I don't like rules. I don't like being told what to do um, every single minute of my day. And when I do it and what I wear when I do it, especially not by my own brother, as you might understand. I feel there's a real big brother thing here. Get it? <laughs> I, I can't help feeling I want him to succeed. I want the project to succeed. You know, we've got to defeat the virus. We've got to be able to open up the country. We've got to get back to normal. We've also said so we've got to go through what might be more months of pain. I'm more accepting than I was the first time because we have the vaccine but they've got to get that right. That there can be no more screw-ups, as far as I'm concerned. Because I think, you know, you lose the consent. You lose civilian consent. You can't, the government can't tell everybody to stay home and don't wait for the vaccine if it doesn't deliver the vaccine. Since I, I love that you, I love you saying like, there really is a big brother, quote unquote. Um, I'm not going to go into that. Yeah, go on. No, no. So, so let me just ask you this. Here's, here's my question about your brother. It's an easy one. When Peter Morgan does this chapter of The Crown, who plays your brother? Oh, I don't know. There's only about one actor who's ever played him. and He seems to play him in everything. And he's got a kind of blonde haystack. And he is very uncannily good. In fact, I went to a play written by Johnny Maitland, and I can't remember what it was called. But there were times when I literally thought I was looking at him because it's something about the gait and the hair and the, the way he wears a suit. It's unmistakable. Yeah, it's something to do with silhouette and the way he stands. I don't know. Who would you have play him? I was trying to think of this. You know, I mean, it's like, in some ways I was thinking, like, if you put a wig on James Corden. No, James Corden, no. <laughs> <laughs> don't the only thing that's good about your brother is he had covid hair before anyone had covid hair <laughs> i think essentially that the nut the kernel of all this is other people's envy about the lifestyles of the rich and famous and now covid has given them a way of as it were incriminating them for having those lifestyles which of course they've used with glee pleasure and intent even when it comes to the royal family, uh, you saw there were pic- people put pictures up or sent them pictures to, to the tabloids of Prince William and Prince Edward in a park, which made me think, you know, there's just, there's a vaccine, but there's no vaccine for spite or envy. And that's essentially what we see. It's an absolute outbreak of that. And jealousy and rage and anxiety are really ripping through the country much more than coronavirus. Beautifully put. Very well put. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll have to have you back again, Rachel. This has been great. Well, I love writing for you guys. I think you're a terrific outfit. All right, Michael. Well, that was an illuminating and inspiring conversation. I can't wait to have lunch with Rachel back in New York. She went to Claudette with Gray and Alessandra. I think we'll take her to Via Corotta. I'll definitely outdrink her in terms of Negronis. And we'll have a very fun talk. But until then, find more of her here on Morning Meeting. Yeah, so a lot of good perspective out of London in the lockdown from Rachel. But actually, that was pretty sobering news. I've got some good news for us, too. We need it. We have 33 pieces of good news in the issue, just in case you're wondering. Uh, We do? Everyone thought, like, hashtag 2020 suck so bad. 
But in fact, we, we sort of have two writers, Angus Harvey and Tane Hunter, who pulled together sort of 33 of the best pieces of news that came out of last year. Here are three that stood out to me. Just a bit of optimism for us as we begin today. Number one is that blue whale populations are bouncing back. They, they've seen unprecedented numbers in the waters around South Georgia. Number two, Britain's woodlands cover as much of the country as they did during the Middle Ages now because of forestry and re rewilding projects. So that's a great step forward. And number three uh, involves one of my favorite things of all time, elephants. Uh, the Kenya Wildlife Service says that its elephant population has more than doubled from 1989 to today. So three bits of good news for us, okay? Angus and Tane had the best job of any journalist this week. If all they had to do was track down that. I know, you're on the good news beat, right? Good news beat. Good place to be. Right. They're not sponsored by Klonopin or... Acetragonus tequila. That was a joke, Michael. Obviously, those are not our sponsors, but I don't know about you. That's what's been getting me through this week. Okay, so they're your sponsors at your home. They're my personal sponsors. Yeah. They're bringing me to this microphone. They're not your getting clean sponsors, though. No, definitely not. They're not your intervention sponsors, which we all may need by January 20th if we're not careful. I'm expecting one of those mental health services that, you know, offers you a therapist on, via text to contact me at any minute. I'm here. I'm waiting. Exactly. Look outside your window, Ashley. <laughs> All right, Michael, would you like to start with drugs or murder? I'll start with uh, murder. Great. Okay. Photos Dulos. It's been a year now since Photos Dulos took his own life. And... Rich Cohen, who has followed this story meticulously for us, has written part seven to the series, which, by the way, this was one of our most popular stories that we've ever published. People simply could not get enough. And Rich Cohen comes back and revisits this and retraces his steps on the day that Photos' wife, Jennifer, vanished. He was accused of killing her. I don't know, Michael, where do you land on this? You edited this piece, so t give us the scoop here. It's a terrific Piece. I mean, so photos killed himself January 20th, 2020, almost a year ago. And sort of looking at that moment, Rich went back and retraced that last day, May 24th, 2019, and sort of up in Connecticut and trying to get into the mind of Fotis and the mind of Jennifer, uh, his estranged wife at the time, and understand what and, and what what I think is the insight that Rich brings to this piece that is that is um so good is, and Rich lives up in Connecticut himself, but looking at the kind of socio-cultural forces that Fotis, the guy who really was from kind of from the wrong side of the tracks, maybe had been feeling with it, trying to compete and belong in this upper class, upper middle class uh, Connecticut world that he had entered and then was being excluded from. And when he, when he, when he chose to leave his family. So, and Rich, you know, sort of looks at the house they were living in, what that was, what, what, and retraces Fotis's last journey, as it were, that day, and, and, um, and what, what may have been going through his mind, getting inside the mind of a killer. So Bridgerton is a new period drama. It was created by Chris Van Dusen and produced by Shonda Rhimes. And it was based on Julia Quinn's novels that were set in the hyper-competitive world of high society in Regency London during the social season when the debutantes are presented at court. So it came out on Netflix uh, on December 25th. 
And the drama is all about this Bridgerton family, uh, you know, this mother and her daughters and her sons, and they're all dressed very fancily and having, you know, bodice ripping sex, X, Y, and Z. Anyway, I watched the pilot episode. I was confused. I brought it up at our daily editorial meeting, and it turns out that everyone else was as confused as I was. I think there was one person, I'm not going to name them, who liked it. She, watched, she did watch the whole season. Right. Brooke and I, like we heard about everyone else, let's check it out. Open mind. We watched maybe one and a half episodes. I thought this was so poorly acted, so poorly executed, so poorly cast. I mean, this woman who's supposed to be this sort of like enchanting lead had no charisma at all. I felt like the, you know, and I look, I love a period drama. I love a drawing room drama. I love anything about cast and society and, and, you know, Obviously, my favorite editor at Airmail. Of course you like that stuff. But it was just like, it was dead on arrival. Yeah. It didn't do it for me. Not like I have the world's best attention span these days anyway, given that I'm constantly refreshing Twitter and all of the news sites. But uh, it, it didn't It didn't do it for me. But it's still like the number two show on Netflix right now. So obviously it has found an audience. I guess. If you want Are a you good watch- show on Netflix... I'm just going to say it really quickly. One that I discovered after I turned this one off and Brooke found it, the Kaminsky Method. Alan Arkin, Michael Douglas. That's all I'm going to say. We can talk about it more next time. All right. I'm watching that tonight, Michael. I need something. Good. I think you're going to love it. David's going to make me watch Gardner's World with Monty Don. Like, that's the headspace he's in. (laughs) Which, it's a charming show. Well, I'll watch that then, and then we can compare and contrast. Sounds good. By the way, I love, do you ever follow, you know, Charlie McCormick, he's a friend of Airmail. We've had him in the issue. He has the most delightful Instagram. If anyone wants to look at beautiful gardens in the UK and also the most stunning dahlias, they are prize winning. Uh, You really should check out his IG. It's been putting me in a good mood, giving me a little virtual trip to Dorset every day. Need it right now, Michael. Yeah, as as Jaja Gabor would say, dahlia is most lovely dahlias. I don't know, dahlia. Can you please quote Jaja Gabor more often? Dahlia, he has the most lovely dahlias. How's that? <laughs> all right, Michael. Well, I think that's probably all of the genius that we have to share today. Would you like me to read us out? Oh, please. Um, before I do, I yeah. would just like to mention, I know both of us want to thank everyone. In the few brief months that you and I have been doing this podcast, We've already notched 25,000 downloads, so we both of us want to thank you, and we appreciate all, all your support and listening and telling everyone else about us. We do. Jesse, cue up some festive music there, and we need to thank Jesse Cannon, our editor, who works with us so tirelessly and has done such a great job dealing with our interminable edits at the very last minute. So thank you to Jesse, thank you to our listeners, and thank you to everyone at Airmail that makes it such a great place to work and gives us the bandwidth and uh, energy to do this. Because we love we love podcasting. And if you have any ideas or questions or thoughts or comments, be sure and tweet at us at Airmail Weekly. Oh, or you can get both of us, Ashley Baker at Instagram, Michael Michael Haney at Instagram. Uh, you can follow us and, and get both of us individually there. Or, like I say, directly at Twitter and Instagram for Airmail as well. All right, Michael, on that note, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. 
Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail News, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meaning. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us.